Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movie, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. The Sun newspaper, January 15th, 2019, a hot topic, literally. Spontaneous human combustion is real, and it burns you like an incendiary bomb, top scientist claims. So we just have a very, very recent article in a kind of major newspaper with only some tabloid-like tendencies in the UK. The well, I don't know. <laughs> talking about the reality of spontaneous human combustion and some of the most famous cases, uh, Dr. Brian Ford, he's done exper- experiments with many human replicas to show how it could be real. Now, what's exciting today is that we've got Louis Proud, a Fordian researcher who has written extensively about these strange phenomenon, uh, spontaneous human combustion, sleep paralysis, and electromagnetic anomalies. Louis joins us today from Tasmania, our first guest from Tasmania, and I am super excited to talk about his new book, Borderland Phenomena, Volume 1, Spontaneous Combustion, Poltergeistery, and Anomalous Lights. And joining Allison and I from all the way from Tasmania, Louis, how are you doing today? Yeah, fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show. Super happy to have you, and I'm super happy to hear about uh, weird research and Fordian stuff happening in Tasmania, because the truth is, I know so little about that area, besides like the Tasmanian devil segment from Creep Show. Know about that? <laughs> and um, Allison and I saw Young Einstein in the theater when it came out oh, back geez. in the late 80s. Okay. Yeah. It's a good movie. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, when I was 12, I thought it was awesome. To tell you the truth. I, um, so another awesome Yahoo serious. So we're excited about talking to you. And uh, just want to, so you get, get to know our listeners a little bit. What turned you into a weirdo in the beginning? Oh, okay. Well, um, <clears throat> I'd say that part of it relates to my experience with sleep paralysis um, that's really sort of what got me involved in uh, writing about and researching paranormal phenomena. Uh, and that was the topic of my first book, Dark Intrusions, um, uh, published back in 2009, so quite some time ago. Um, so basically, I, I wrote that book because I'd been having um, quite regular sleep paralysis episodes. Uh, and that's basically where you find yourself in a sort of twilight state of consciousness. Your body is still awake, uh, sorry, still asleep, I should say, and paralyzed, which happens during REM sleep. Uh, but your mind is basically awake and you feel more or less fully conscious. Uh, and all sorts of weird things can happen during sleep paralysis. They're referred to, of course, as hallucinations, but I believe that there's a little bit more to it than that. Uh, but all sorts of strange things can happen. You can have sensations of being touched or you can hear voices and, uh, uh, you know, you sense a presence in the room, etc. cetera. Um, and I know that, you know, it, it's something that a lot of people have experienced. Um, these experiences are not uncommon, but I suppose in my case I was, because of the, the, the frequency of those episodes and the intensity of them, 
Um, you know, it, it definitely seemed as though something paranormal was happening. So I thought I'd investigate it um, a, a little deeper and uh, look into some of the parallels between sleep paralysis and hauntings and poltergeistry and, and all those sorts of things. So uh, spiritualism, etc. cetera. Uh, so that's really what Dark Intrusions is about. One thing, Louis, really quick, I wanted to get you about your your, uh, your sleep paralysis stuff is, yeah. number one, when I had my first experience of sleep paralysis, I was a teenager or almost a teenager, actually, mm-hmm. and I just finished reading the book communion yeah um and i noticed that first of all whitley streber has like a blurb on your book yeah which is awesome mm-hmm. um so how old were you when you had your first experience and like mine was totally like out of communion like i thought i saw the aliens around me and stuff like that and it was only because i'd read the book and he described sleep paralysis yeah that i did not think i was actually abducted by alien yeah yeah in my case i would have been in my late teens, uh, and that's fairly common for the uh, sleep paralysis experiences to start around that age. Um, and yeah, in my case, it was sort of late teens to early 20s. That's when I had most of my sleep paralysis experiences. And then not long after that, I wrote Dark Intrusions. Um, yeah, I, I, I had, um, oh, I, I was always I've always read, you know, books on on paranormal topics, and uh, I think I even saw the uh, communion movie when I was quite young. So, um, <clears throat> and then later, of course, read That's the book. Scare you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those. Uh, pretty pretty sure my dad uh, hired that movie at one point on on VHS many years ago, um, and of course, some um, close encounters and. Uh, of course, saw that movie as well. Who hasn't? Um, so certainly, a lot of this material, I'd say that it probably did shape my perception of those experiences. Um, but I always interpreted it in terms of some form of spirit contact, not necessarily something that was uh, extraterrestrial or alien in nature. Yeah, I, I, it's been a fascinating topic for for me for a long time. Uh, David Hufford's book uh the terror that comes in the night you know yep. was my first introduction to it and then just uh thinking about possible horrifying connections like um sudden unexplained nocturnal uh death syndrome uh and you know shelly's uh shelly uh, adler's work uh, on that um uh cross-culturally looking at uh sleep paralysis that that goes beyond, um, and then uh, so last uh, last July I was lucky enough to present in Hawaii at their first paranormal convention, and uh, I was shocked just uh, in in the preparation for my presentation to find that there had been lots of uh, sons deaths um, in previous years, like in the forties and in the sixties in Hawaii among the the Filipino population. So yeah, I mean it's a big topic. I mean what what are some takeaways uh that you came up with in your book? Well, I uh, I suppose I mean I I always like to uh I suppose the most important thing is is I always try and give people good advice uh, as to how to deal with their own sleep paralysis experiences if they're having those experiences very frequently. Uh, sorry, frequently. Um, and I always tell people to not get too carried away um, simply because even though those experiences can be tremendously frightening and so on, um, certainly there's, 
you, you don't want to get carried away because that's just going to sort of perpetuate the experiences, so to speak. Um, and I, I think the important thing is to also have a look at your own life and, uh, you know, you've got to sort of examine yourself to some extent and and because, um, you know, anxiety, depression, et cetera, can all sort of contribute to this as well. Um, so I, I just wanted to say that I, I don't necessarily ex- interpret all sleep paralysis experiences as being paranormal in origin. Um, and uh, I, I think it's, it's probably good to sort of, you know, give yourself a little bit of a distance from the experiences and not get too caught up in them. Um, because, it, you know, as I said, yeah, it can be terribly, terribly frightening. And I've, I have received quite a few emails from people over the years um, who were sort of seeking help and advice and so on. And I also think it's important to, you know, if, if necessary, see a, you know, a mental health professional as well if the experiences are getting out of hand. Um, so I don't like to necessarily always put a sort of a paranormal spin on, on every sleep paralysis episode. Um, but certainly some of the experiences do indicate some form of, uh, maybe contact with some other intelligence or, you know, you could refer to it as spirit contact. Um, it basically what's happening is it's, it's, it's the hypnagogic state. That's, that's what you're experiencing. And that's, it's always been seen as a, a sort of gateway to the paranormal uh, because you can also experience other things like, um, you know, lucid dreaming and uh, uh, out-of-body experiences and so on. I know that Robert Munro in his books, he talks about entering a very similar state of consciousness uh, to the sort of sleep paralysis state, he even mentions the paralysis experienced in his body uh, before he had a out-of-body experience. So as I said, this, I see that as, as we're really looking at hypnagogia, um, and, you know, which is, is very much a, a gateway into all these different states of consciousness and uh, different realities, if you like. And uh, just a little plug here, you can check out the Sunspot song called Hypnagogic off of our album uh, Singularity, which uh, I can put in the show notes on the other side, podcast.com slash 235. But I think that's great advice. You know, there might be something to it, you know, the thing, but if, if you just have like a weird sleep paralysis experience, like I had a couple of weird ones, our dad, Allison, remember he had an experience where he woke up in the middle of the night and told our mother that there was a specter above her that was trying <laughs> to kill her. And she freaked out the whole thing. And, and she was like, she was like, oh no, Bob, it was just a dream. And he's like, no, it was real. And then seconds later, <laughs> Right. Falls asleep. asleep. <laughs> and then she's <laughs> wide awake all night. She's left crap in her pants the rest of the night. <laughs> but, you know, so... That, that, and I think that's a great advice. You have something. I mean, if you feel like there might be something more, like maybe talk to somebody. Or if you're saying, you know, Adam Gray from the Gray Brothers, they made that great movie, The Nightmare. Um, right. Uh, he was so freaked out by his experience, he was compelled to make a film about it. Yeah. And that's the thing. And, you know, so that's your first kind of weird paranormal experience in your life or, or something realizing that, you know, there's, there's things that happen in our mind. There's things that happen in our body that modern science doesn't have an explanation for. And would you say that was your first experience on the borderland, Louis? Yeah, I, I would say, uh, definitely. Um, and, and that is a very important term, uh, for me. It's, uh, of course I use that in my, my latest book. Um, and, uh, basically it's, when I use the term borderland, I'm referring to um, things that lie on the border or edge of this reality, um, things that are neither here nor there with the, 
but somewhere in between. Um, and uh, I also refer to the word liminal as well, which is a really the same as borderland. It's a Latin word that means limen, uh, meaning threshold. And of course, that ties back to the, the hypnagogic state. It's very much, a, as I said, a twilight state of consciousness. You're neither um, asleep nor awake. Uh, and that's when the, the paranormal experiences, well, that's when they're more likely to occur. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that's a very important term, uh, borderland. And uh, as I said, I mean, in this case, the, the this book is, is specifically about, um, uh, well, of course, spontaneous human combustion, poltergeist, sorry, poltergeistry and anomalous lights, uh, because these are all areas that sort of interact or overlap to a large extent as well. Well, let's get into spontaneous human combustion a little bit, because first of all, I think that it really, it's not something we hear about a lot anymore. Like no. I remember as a kid, when I would look into the, like paranormal books, there would always be at least a little, like a couple of pages and they'd have that famous picture. Um, and we'll discuss that. We'll discuss that in a second. The famous picture um, is like the leg, you know, on like next to the armchair kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you'd see that and they'd have a couple of cases of spontaneous human combustion, but then you wouldn't have that much about it. Like there wasn't that much research into it. And so I was excited. I was like, okay, somebody's looking into it. So for people who maybe uh, are like, well, we know about ghosts, we know about demons, of course, we know about the Ouija board, but what's spontaneous (laughs) human combustion? Like, uh, can you give us a 101 on SHC? Yeah, certainly. I just wanted to add too that you're right that it is a it's a phenomenon that doesn't get a lot of attention these days, um, uh, which is a shame, really. Uh, it's, I, f- I think it's one of the most fascinating uh, sort of uh, forms of, of paranormal activity, if you like. Um, but basically, it, it refers to um, it's a, form, a phenomenon whereby the human body's almost entirely reduced to ash. Uh, it generally happens within a period of, say. 10 to 12 hours, and that all depends on when the person was last seen alive uh, and when their later or their remains are later discovered. So it's hard to put a sort of time frame on how long it takes, um, but it seems to vary from case to case. Um, and it seems as though that person has just suddenly and sort of inexplicably, uh, you know, caught fire, uh, you know, from within, uh, and that their, you know, flesh and bones have been consumed by that fire. Uh, and uh, it's a phenomenon that dates back, oh, well, there are cases dating back hundreds of years, but um, um, it's, it's a very, very rare phenomenon. I, I guess I think that's an important point to make. Um, these sorts of cases are very, very rare, uh, and there are really only a sort of a handful of very well-documented cases. Uh, but the big mystery around spontaneous human combustion is the fact that um, it is very hard to reduce the human body to ash uh, and certainly to the extent that we see in SHC where the actual bones have even been reduced to ash because um, you know you know in a modern crematorium um, you know they use oil and, and gas and other fuels to uh, basically burn the body in the presence of, of forced air uh, and we're talking about very high temperatures here at some sort of range between uh, the figures I have uh, 760 to 1150 degrees centius, uh, uh, Celsius sorry uh, I'm not too sure what that is in Fahrenheit I'm sorry um, but basically what well, it's super it's super hot it's, no matter yeah. what like, whatever, if, you're, if you're over 100 Celsius it's yep. super hot in Fahrenheit <laughs> for us Americans it, exactly yeah and um, 
and basically that that takes sort of anywhere between 90 minutes and two hours uh, to reduce the human body to a state where um, you know it's been pretty much entirely reduced to ash but the bones uh, still remain and they need to be crushed up in a machine called a, a cremulator um, and uh, of course we need to realize too that the, uh, that the human body is 65 percent water uh, as well I think I have the name for my new metal band <laughs> First the cremulator cremulator <laughs> But I mean that was fascinating to to hear that you know yeah. the bones are you know they they need to be further crushed down mm. you know it's not exactly it, so it didn't didn't sound um you know plausible that you know these SHC cases you know how completely they burned I mean that that's still a mystery isn't it Exactly the mystery is around you know where does the energy come from uh, and by what process is that actually achieved? Was the human body being reduced to that state? Because even if somebody like dropped a cigarette on themselves or whatever, like let's say they're having a smoke and they fall asleep and they drop a cigarette, mm-hmm. or that like that sets fire to the couch, yep. it's not going to burn the bones. No, exactly. I mean, most likely the the well, the cigarette would probably just go out. Um, you know, it's it's actually quite rare even for a, a drop cigarette to actually start a blaze like that as well. Um, and, you know, that, that explanation has been used in quite a few um, SHC cases because the, the victims have been smokers, um, which is certainly the case too is was uh, Mary Hardy Reeser, uh, which I know is a, a case that you were keen to discuss uh, because that's really like the most famous uh, case of spontaneous human combustion. Uh, and if you'd like for me to give a sort of an overview of that case, I'd be happy to. Oh, yep. that's exactly what we want to hear about, Mary Research. Number one, because, yep. it, well, it, it's, it happened within the lifetime of a lot of people, hmm. um, you know, who are listening to the podcast. Yep. Um, it was recent enough where they could take pictures and things like that. Mm-hmm. So this is not in the ancient past. This isn't the reports of something where they didn't have good technology to research. This happened in the 20th century. So let's hear about Mary Research. Yeah, well, she was a um, 67-year-old widow uh, of a doctor, um, and uh, she was she, she lived in Columbia in, in Pennsylvania, uh, but then she decided to move to St. Petersburg in, in Florida, uh, the reason being that she wanted to be closer to her son and his family. Uh, so she was quite a sort of lonely woman in the sense that she had lost her husband, um, but she didn't like living in, in St. Petersburg at all because of the heat and humidity and so on. So she, she was quite unhappy, uh, you know, in the weeks leading up to her death, which is, a, is an important point that we'll sort of come to later as the, the, I suppose, the emotional state of the victims is, is something that's very important. Um, but she'd been living in this uh, apartment, um, a small apartment for about five weeks uh, when um, it was on the, the night of July First or second, they they're not too sure exactly when the incident happened, but she uh, that she she actually died. Uh, and basically, um, what had happened is 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 uh, that evening she'd been um, uh, she'd been visited by her uh, her son. Um, he was one of the last people to see her alive, as well as her landlady. Uh, her landlady was called Pansy Carpenter. And um, she reported being awoken. Uh, it was sort of early on the morning of the 2nd of July. She heard like a dull thud uh, and then like a muffled sort of sound uh, or report that was similar to she described as like a door slamming. Uh, and she also uh, smelt like the, the faint smell of smoke or a very sort of kind of sweet sort of odor. 
Um, and then, so she heard death on the way out. <laughs> well, she she heard him leaving. <laughs> she certainly heard some, uh, you know, some weird noises and and that sort of thing. So, um, and then it was it was early later that morning that she uh, she went to go and check on on Mrs. Reeser because she uh, basically a telegram had been delivered and she wanted to take it straight to her door and, and sort of check up on her. And uh, Mrs. Reeser had been sort of quite. Uh, emotional the night before as well. She, um, you know, she because basically she'd been trying to uh, find an apartment back in Colombia. She wanted to go to stay there for a while, um, and uh, you know to see her friends and that sort of thing. Uh, and she wasn't able to secure an apartment, so she felt very much trapped in in Saint Saint Petersburg. Um, and so she, you know, went to the apartment of Mrs. Reese. She touched the uh, the door handle. Uh, and it was actually hot to the touch. So uh, and then she smelled smoke, and then she noticed that there was soot on the walls of the hallway. Uh, and that's when they they came upon her remains. And uh, basically, she'd been pretty much entirely uh, reduced to ash, uh, and including the the chair that she was seated on as well. Um, she liked to sort of sit in a in a, in a large easy chair, uh, you know, of an evening, um, you know. And she she was a smoker as well. That's an important point to make. Um, so basically, she she obviously sat down in that chair that evening, uh, and at some point, uh, you know, well, perhaps she. I mean, the theory, of course, is that she she dropped a cigarette, um, and that started the blaze. But basically, the her and the chair had been almost entirely reduced to ash. Um, the only things that really remained. Um, were um, there was a part of her left foot. Um, there was a, a chunk of, of backbone as well, um, and also a, uh, a part of her body that looked like her skull. Um, so that's it was supposedly shrunken. Um, that's always been a very sort of controversial aspect of the case, whether or not her skull was actually shrunken during the uh, the cremation. Now, okay, what, does heat normally do that? Now, I have never burned a skull, unfortunately. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm working on it. It's on your bucket list. Apparently, it's it's more likely to just sort of kind of shatter, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I suppose the important point is that she was almost pretty much gone, um, totally reduced to ash, and there was just a sort of – the main thing that was remaining was her, her left foot, and it was actually still clad in a, in a, in a slipper, um, which is... <laughs> right, the slipper didn't burn, the whole yeah. chair burns, but the, exactly. but the foot in the slipper yeah. is fine. It's like a weird Cinderella thing. Exactly, and yet that's the, you know, the famous photograph that you'll see there if you, you know, Google spontaneous human combustion, you're bound to come across that famous photograph of the, uh, <laughs> the slipper, uh, basically the foot still in its slipper. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just such a, a strange thing too, because the the mystery too is how the apartment itself wasn't um, really badly damaged. Um, there was very little damage to the apartment. So um, you know, for example, um, oh, you know, like the the paint was 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 hardly cracked and and that sort of thing. Um, there were objects nearby the chair, like even a, a stack of newspapers. Uh, there was a there was like a a small bed that she had set up like a spare bed as well uh the sheets were barely touched so they weren't scorched or anything like that um so these are very very localized 
fires. Um, so that's the very strange thing. Another very strange aspect of spontaneous human combustion is that the fires don't seem to spread. Uh, they seem to be very localized and, and just sort of more or less focus on the person and maybe uh, in some cases, if they are in a chair, for example, maybe the chair will also be burned in the process as well. Now, was there anything like previous to that? You know, and hmm. I'm reading this chapter in your book, yep. it, it really gets into it really gets into good detail about uh, poor Mrs. Reese's life yep. and how she's feeling. And, and you know, she moves down to St. Petersburg. So let's recap a little bit. She moves down to St. Petersburg because she wants to be closer to her son and she's a widower. Yep. But she doesn't like it because she doesn't, it's Florida's too hot and she doesn't feel comfortable. Mm. There's not AC everywhere like there is now. Yep. And so she's looking for a way to get back to Columbia. But then what happens is that the apartment that she was interested in is not, uh, av- she finds out it's not available. Mm-hmm. So she realizes she's kind of stuck in Columbia for a while, even though she loves her son. Yep. She's yeah. She's she's stuck, yes, stuck in St. Petersburg and can't oh, go sorry, back so- to the more temperate climate of Columbia. That's it. But was there anything like previous to that, like where she felt hot or she was like, oh, I'm, you know, where her body, you know, that there's some story of her um, like having a stroke where her body temperature wasn't regulated correctly or, you know, or anything like that. Or was it just, you know, she's just like, that's it. She on fire. <laughs> um, well, that's the, the strange thing is that, you know, they, they as I said, she, she was visited that evening uh, before the incident um, by her son and the landlady, and she did seem completely fine. It was just a typical evening for her. She was um, uh, Her son reported seeing her basically just lounging in her easy chair. Um, she had taken a, uh, like a, a couple of sedatives. Um, she did take, uh, I think it was Seconol tablets, um, and uh, she had been smoking and so on. Um, so really it was just a, a more or less a typical evening for her. Um, and, um, yeah, she, she was, you know, not in the happiest mood, of course, uh, because of the news about not being able to secure an apartment in Colombia. Um, so, and, and the reason I mention that is that there's a, a theory that, that spontaneous human combustion is a form of, of subconscious suicide, uh, which is it's quite an involved theory, but I, I think it's probably one of the most promising ones. And basically that, that sort of relates to the fact that, um, that most of these victims are elderly uh, and most of them are quite lonely, unhappy people. Oh, yeah. I mean, Def Leppard says it right in, uh, you know, in Pyromania, it's better to burn out than to fade away, right? And so yeah. it, that sounds exactly what these people are doing. But Helen Reeser, now in the book also, you mentioned that people associated spontaneous human combustion uh, with alcoholism. That's correct. Now, Helen yeah. Reeser, she was on the sedatives. So like you said, a, a normal night. Well, mm. I don't even take sedatives, <laughs> but it sounds like fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so she sits back in the chair Pops a couple of pills, mm. smokes a couple of cigs. Is she drinking at the same time? No, she 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 didn't drink apparently, um, or at least she certainly wasn't an alcoholic. Um, uh, from what I understand, she was just sort of drank socially. Um, but that's true. That's that's one of the uh, there's this belief. Uh, it's really it's been totally discredited now. But there was a belief uh, that uh, that. Alcoholism was responsible for spontaneous human combustion, and that basically uh, these people were sort of absorbing the alcohol into the very tissues of their body and uh, making themselves flammable that way. 
So you don't have to worry about it, Mike. Right. And if you've ever had a flaming shot, if you've ever had a flaming shot, you know that alcohol is very flammable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I, you know, that was a big revelation when I was reading your book, Louis, that mm. uh, there were all these historical cases yeah. of uh, spontaneous human combustion, you know, so much so that... Um, you know, people were coming up with these theories that it was yep. because of the alcohol. Mm. And, you know, and, and also uh, you talk about uh, Charles Dickens and Bleak House mm. and, you know, how he he uh, depicts uh, the drunk in, in that story as burning up. Yep. Uh, oh, thanks for the spoiler, Allison. Bleak House was <laughs> next on my Goodreads. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. Sorry, Mike. It was, it was kind of a way to scare people as well. Um, you know, sort of suggesting that there was a link between alcoholism and, and SHC. Um, so you know, uh, certainly people would have feared that uh, you know if they were heavy drinkers, then they might succumb to to SHC. Yeah. So people are using it for a political reason. Yeah, or, or sort of religious yeah. reasons. Um, you know, there's that whole yeah, sort of or sociological Christian. Right. The women's temperance movement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, but the real quick though, we talk about the, the historical basis and the historical stories of spontaneous human combustion, but I'm interested in, do you know who actually uh, coined that term? Like who actually wrote that down? It's like, you know, th this is be a real badass name for a phenomena that <laughs> burns you up like a fireball, spontaneous human combustion. Like it sounds simple, but it sounds like somebody really thought about that name to make it as sweet as possible. Is that, did you find out whoever created that name? Um, I must admit, I, I'm not familiar with, with who actually coined the term uh, spontaneous human combustion. Um, but certainly it's, it, it's, quite a good description of what occurs in the sense that, uh, yes, these incidents do seem to be spontaneous in nature, uh, and they do seem to affect only people as well. Uh, there are really no cases on record of animals uh, succumbing to, you know, spontaneous combustion. Um, so it does seem to be very much, um, uh, you know, particular to, to people, uh, which, which is another interesting aspect of the phenomenon as well. And, and that's why um, I think the subconscious suicide theory is such a, an in, intriguing theory because um, the very fact that it, it seems to happen only to humans uh, and, you know, I, we need to look at what makes humans special and unique. And the, the thing that I would say makes us special and unique is our, um, you know, highly developed uh, minds, our, our highly developed consciousness, if you like. Uh, we're basically, uh, I would say, more sophisticated uh, psychically, if you want to use that word, uh, than any other animal on the planet. And we're too smart for our own good. <laughs> we might end up burning ourselves up. There's a whole bunch of dolphins listening right now. They're like, screw you, Louie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the dolphins are like, we can't burn ourselves because we're in the water. That That's might it. have something to That's do with it. That's your explanation. <laughs> That's why we beach ourselves. Yeah. No, but the thing is, though, when you say subconscious suicide, what I'm interested in here hmm. is that this idea that um, – First of all, you want to die so bad that you blow yep. up, yep. basically. Mm. But next, like, what would make it burn so hot? Is there any chemical or anything that we have in our bodies that could ignite at that level, especially ignite to the fact that we're like 60% or 70% water yep. uh, that could burn through all that water? 
Yeah, that's that's a very good question. My theory on this is that uh, you know because the human body is electrical in nature or electrochemical, um, because of course we we have nerve cells and, and, and muscle cells in our bodies uh, that operate via electrical impulses. Um, I think it's probably a uh, what we're looking at is really an, an electromagnetic phenomenon, um, whereby there's some kind of malfunction uh, within the body's electrical system. And that's what's actually causing the fires to occur. Um, but we also need to realize too that, uh, you know, SHC is, is linked to poltergeistry. Uh, and in poltergeist incidents, mm. of course, we, we can see uh, all sorts of amazing dramatic things occur, uh, you know, whereby objects are, are thrown around and uh, sometimes things will materialize and dematerialize etc so we're talking about sort of uh, macro pk effects uh, or psychokinetic effects um, and there could be of course other energies involved as well besides just electromagnetism uh, you know these subtle energies if you like um, that have been uh, terms such things as chi and, and orgone etc um, and i think there's there's probably some connection there as well uh, we don't really fully understand, of course, the um, I suppose how the the human body operates, uh, you know, electromagnetically. I mean, I've been trying for forty two years, and I don't understand <laughs> nothing about my body. <laughs> well, I'm I'm fascinated too about that. You know, that there might be a connection yep. to poltergeist because that's one of one of my um, yep. favorites uh, topics, mm. and you know, and the fact that you know there have been. Uh, poltergeists that start fires those are like the scariest ones i think and um in italy uh, uh, about 10 years back there there was that incidence of of um you know a whole village that had all these weird you know fires that were starting spontaneously and and nobody had uh, any explanation and had to be uh, the city had to be evacuated and um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of weird stuff uh, having to do with these spontaneous fires. And, well, let's, and, let's connect it real yeah. quick. Yeah. Let's connect I, it real quick. So, so the idea of pyrokinesis here is that the, number one, the idea that like Firestarter or whatever, like Drew Barrymore and Firestarter, like, you make fires happen with your mind. Right, like a human agent. That's a, the role of a human agent in, in poltergeistry. And so you could be doing this to yourself in spontaneous human combustion. Like that's a, and the fact that your subconscious does that to you, like you think your subconscious is like fighting against you when you get nervous in public or you're sweating when you're talking to a girl. Think about what happens when it fires your body so hot, all that's left is ash and your skull is shrunken. Yeah. So let's connect this to poltergeist a little bit. Um, how would poltergeists and spontaneous human combustion be maybe the same kind of thing, Louis? Yeah, right. Well, this is a theory that uh, the 14 researcher Vincent Gaddis uh, came up with. Um, and uh, it's in, in his book, Mysterious Fires and Lights, he goes into qu quite some detail on this theory. Um, but basically, um, uh, you know, first of all, we need to, to, to realize that, as I said, in the case of poltergeister, it's very much a uh, uh, sort of a subconscious effect. Uh, of course, it's referred to as recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. So, uh, you know, there's always a, a human uh, around whom the activity occurs. They're re referred to, of course, as the agent or focus of that activity. 
Uh, and so it seems as though they're actually causing the activity to occur uh, subconsciously. Uh, it's because of, uh, you know, emotional reasons. They have a lot of pent up anger and frustration, and that's a way to express or externalize uh, that anger and frustration. So there's clearly some form of energy involved. And, and a lot of time it's around a teenage girl. And, exactly. You know, uh, if it did. And this is why I almost never believed in poltergeist because it never happened around my sister Allison. And if you think anybody was emotional when she was a teenage girl, yeah. you'd expect oh. my sister to break every dish in the house. Um, <laughs> Come but, on. I know, but Louis, in your book, though, well, I mean, this may be one of the reasons that you're interested in this phenomenon in the first place. You said mm. that within your own family, there was some. First of all, I love the term poltergeistery, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use it for the rest of the week. <laughs> but you, I mean, you said that in your own family there was a poltergeist experience. Yeah, that's correct. So this, um, and, and this is something that my father told me. My late father, uh, he actually uh, uh, apparently witnessed some of these incidents when he was a teenager. The uh, activity occurred around my um, or around his adopted sister, um, and she was about 16 years old at the time or a little bit younger uh, and basically they were uh, living in a, in a house uh, in sort of fairly remote area uh, I believe it was the the snowy mountains uh, in uh, uh, in New South Wales and uh, basically what happened was uh, they started noticing all these weird things happening uh, particularly uh, showers of stones on the roof of the house so they'd hear these little sort of dings on the roof uh, and they'd run outside and, and there'd be no one around who seemed to be causing it. So um, uh, that was very strange and they actually called up the police and, and uh, because my grandmother was, was getting very stressed and worried about the whole thing uh, and they thought it might have been teenagers or something like that who were harassing them, throwing these stones on the roof. Uh, and they had the police come around and they sort of patrolled the area and, uh, you know, on a few occasions they didn't actually see anyone present. Um, so that was quite mysterious. They were unable to identify any sort of human agent, if you like. Uh, and then there was other weird things too. My dad uh, told me about seeing these sort of strange balls of light uh, that would sort of float uh, or hover outside the uh, the front door of the house and the windows and so on. Um, so he'd be, you know, sort of, his, you know, attention would be drawn to this uh, this strange light, um, you know, sometimes bluish in colour, uh, hovering outside the, the door, like just behind the frosted glass sort of thing. Uh, and he'd go over and open the door and then the, the light would just suddenly vanish. Um, and um, <clears throat> my my aunt, uh, late aunt, uh, she was a, uh, you know, very unhappy uh, young woman. Um, and uh, unfortunately, she later committed suicide. So uh, she did struggle with depression and, and, and so on. Um, and, and this is a recurring theme in, in poltergeist incidents. Is the as I said, the focus is uh, generally a troubled adolescent. Uh, and there have been other cases too um, of the uh, the, the uh, agent actually being a uh, someone who was adopted into the family. Um, so they have a lot of angst, a lot of anger and uh, uh, resentment perhaps against their family members. And as I said, it's a way of uh, sort of, I suppose, venting some of their frustration and anger, um, you know, they by causing these poltergeist events to occur. 
Uh, and they seem to be just a little bit aware too that they are responsible for the activity or at least that the activity is, is linked to them somehow. Um, now, I don't think that's necessarily the whole explanation either. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I am open to the possibility that there could be other intelligences or entities involved as well, uh, you know, which of course uh, relates to the spirit theory, which says that, you know, you know, that there are spirits responsible, that they actually attach themselves to the person and they draw on that person's energy in order to, to cause the disturbances. Um, so there could be, you know, I'm certainly open to, to that possibility as well, but pretty much in every poltergeist case, it always links back to some living person uh, and most of these things happen, of course, in a domestic setting as well, and it's an unhappy family. So we need to sort of look at the psychology involved. That's a very important thing. And in the case of spontaneous human combustion, most of the victims, as I said, they're depressed elderly people. Um, and the, the theory is, as I said, that Vincent Gaddis came up with he, uh, or observation that he had is that, um, you know, in the case of poltergeist activity, the energy is externalized. And in the case of spontaneous human combustion, the energy seems to be internalized. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's basically the way for that person to, in a sense, uh, you know, commit suicide there, um, <laughs> which I know sounds totally bizarre. But, um, uh, yeah, you know, they seem to be very unhappy people. No, I don't think it's bizarre at mm. all because the idea that, I mean, I mean, if you – because to want to take your own life is a very serious decision. It's a very grave thing. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah. You obviously don't feel good about mm. what's happening in your life. And yep. so sometimes that desire yep. might be so deep, mm. uh, it can man it can manifest itself in different ways. I mean, yep. how right. many people, how many people go out and do suicide by cop? Mm. You know, we just, that happens constantly with like, okay, I can't kill myself, but what I can do is I can go around and shoot up a place and then yeah. try not to kill anybody, but get killed myself yeah. or they drink themselves to death or how many heroin overdoses are actually people who just hmm. don't want to keep going on. Yeah. So this is just, I mean, it, your subconscious drives you in a certain way. Yeah. And, and this idea hmm. that, uh, man, I just don't want to go on and think about poor Helen Reeser. She, I mean, um, without without her husband, not in the place she wants to be at. She's kind of sad. Um, sometimes things manifest themselves in a different way. And I like the fact that we're going back to this idea that poltergeists have human agents. Yep. Because the past couple of years, I've been like, no, nah, man, poltergeists are fairies. <laughs> uh, and they still might be. <laughs> right. But I like going back to the, the classic 1970s idea that some teenager is freaking out and causing the hail of stones to happen over your house. Yeah, or the anomalous lights. That that connects in, too, with the anomalous lights, uh, the story from your very own family that, that um, you know, wasn't just the clotting of these stones uh, on the top of the house. It was also, you know, these, these lights which were coming towards the door. Yeah, are you sure Tasmania isn't the borderland? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that, well, that is really... yeah. Really pretty cool. As as far as poltergeists go, you know, I it's it's better than broken dishes. I mean, I would love to be able to manifest lights. Mm. Yeah, I'd be I, I'd be like manifest some bucks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There are quite a few uh, poltergeist cases where there have been strange lights seen, uh, generally described as orbs. Um, so it's it's not an uncommon aspect of poltergeistry. Uh, the fires as well, that's uh, something that pops up from time to time. Uh, generally, 
in poltergeist cases, I mean, the most common thing, of course, is the, uh, uh, you know, raps and, and, and banging noises on the walls and, and objects being thrown about. But, um, yeah, there can be spontaneous fires uh, and there can be anomalous lights as well. Uh, and there's one case that I, I discuss in quite some detail in my book is the, uh, it's referred to as the Great Amherst Mystery. Uh, which was a, a poltergeist case that dates from it was eighteen seventy eight to eighteen seventy nine. Uh, it happened in in Nova Scotia. That's correct. Yeah, and there was a a, a young uh, woman involved who was. Uh, named Esther Cox, and, and, and she was uh, 19 years old, uh, and certainly the, the activity focused around her, and it was uh, also um, well, really the, the – well, there's a famous – I mean, the name the name of the actual incident gets its uh, – it comes from a book called The Great Amherst Mystery, which was written by a, uh, an actor uh, named Walter Hubble, who had an interest in paranormal phenomena, and um, he actually – investigated the case because he wanted to uh, basically defraud the mystery uh, because he'd looked into spiritualism and he'd, he'd found a lot of cases where um, the uh, the mediums had been using trickery and so on uh, to fool people. So he went along to investigate this case uh, thinking that he would defraud it uh, and expose uh, you know the lies and so on, but he actually ended up becoming a believer in the case and he wrote a, a fascinating book on it. Um, but in the case of Esther Cox, um, uh, there were uh, in the house that they lived in, uh, her and her family, it was just a, a sort of a small cramped cottage. It was a, very much an extended family. Um, and uh, she was not necessarily a troubled young woman, but uh, it's, it's thought that she harbored feelings of jealousy towards her older, um, so, sort of more attractive and popular sister, uh, Jenny. And uh, the first incident that occurred was when they were sleeping in bed together um, and uh, she complained of there being a mouse under the covers. Uh, and uh, and then a, a, another weird thing happened. This is it's also a recurring theme in poltergeist instances. There seems to be some kind of creature uh, under the uh, under the covers of the bed. Um, and, uh, and, of course, when they you check, there's actually nothing there. So, And these things, too, also happen sort of first seem to manifest around sort of bedtime. Uh, we'll find, like in the Enfield case as well, it was a, uh, there was a case from England. Uh, it happened, you know, sort of in the evening and there was a, uh, you know, the children had just gone to bed and that's when the activity first started to happen. But um, in Esther's case, she complained of uh, experiencing a lot of swelling in her body uh, and she, uh, you know, she was yelling in pain and so on. Um, so she became very swollen, apparently, which is quite strange. She said that she you know, seemed to be having some kind of fever or something. Um, and then um, the swelling in her body subsided and they, uh, uh, there was a, a lot of sort of uh, shaking. Uh, basically, they, they said that the room was shaking and so on, uh, that they heard um, uh, what sounded like thunder and, and that sort of thing, and there seemed to be kind of uh, those sort of strange noises. Um, but basically, um, uh, as, as soon as the swelling subsided, um, you know, the shaking stopped and so on. Uh, but then other th weird things happened and there were quite a few incidents of, of uh, spontaneous fires as well. Um, and they'd started communicating with the supposed entity using, you know, rapping noises and that kind of things to, to speak to it. Um, apparently, they did hear a few voices as well. Uh, but basically, the uh, the entity was threatening to burn down the house uh, and there were a lot of 
fires erupting in various parts of the house. Uh, so that's a famous example of a of a you know a fire poltergeist. What's interesting in, in that in that story too, there's a couple of different yep. things. Number one is the poltergeist wrote something above the head of her bed. Esther Cox, you are mine to kill. That's right. <laughs> um, which is terrifying. Yep. And, and and second is that so Hubble. Mm. He thinks that the whole thing is launched by the fact that Esther is sexually assaulted. So this idea that abuse mm. kind of sets the whole thing in motion. Yeah. And you know, this is something that we still think about today. Yeah. Um, you know, I find myself even thinking about that in different cases. Mm. Number one, because I had a very good friend that investigated a lot of different cases in the Milwaukee area. And he said, you know, I used to believe in ghosts, but now all I do is I believe in abuse. Okay. Right. Um, is I check out and, you know, he would, he investigated with a policeman and he himself had a criminal science degree. And he's like, dude, I just, every time we go to a place, it's always some case of, you know, the boyfriend comes over and touches somebody, you know, all that kind of stuff. Even the whole famous demon house thing that Zach Baggins in his movie and the, the demon house in Indiana, um, that whole family looks like they were dealing with uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, and some kind of physical abuse in it as well. And then the kids go off and, and weird things start happening to them. Mm -hmm. And when you look at this case in the 19th century, you know, I don't know if it's my prejudice that I think of it like, yeah, well, maybe abuse kicks things off or um, one, one human abusing another yeah. <laughs> either sets something psychologically in motion, even subconsciously mm -hmm. in someone's mind who is vulnerable or it's it it opens up the possibility for some kind of interdimensional beastie to come down and take advantage of the situation. Yeah. And that is the craziest thing I've ever said, but it's it does kind of sound like, you know, that might happen. Yeah, no, those those are very good observations. Um in the case of Esther Cox, she was uh, apparently just days before um the activity occurred, uh she was uh, basically, yeah, sexually assaulted uh at gunpoint uh by a, a young man that she oh, was Christ. seeing at the time. His name was Bob McNeil, which is also the the the, the name that the supposed poltergeist entity assumed as well apparently referred to himself as bob um so there's an interesting connection there but basically she'd she'd suffered this tremendous yeah, no, con no connection. <laughs> so she'd suffered this tremendous uh, psychological shock uh, and that seemed to set the whole thing in motion um so there's definitely a, a you know a sexual component at work uh, in poltergeist events uh you know or a, a, you know a well, I suppose a situation where some kind of abuse has occurred, uh, sexual abuse of some kind, etc. Um, but yeah, in her case, it was a, a, a tremendous psychological shock. Um, so yeah, so that's that's what seemed to to start the whole thing. Um, of course, the activity did did die down eventually. Um, that was after she was married and had a child. Uh, but she was also arrested too. Was the uh, in connection with the burning down of a barn as well. And it's hard to know whether or not she actually lit the fire herself or whether or not it was caused by the, the, uh, the poltergeist. Um, but yeah, it's just such a, such a fascinating case. Um, cause the thing is too, there's, you know, although the activity was connected to Esther, uh, the so-called poltergeist, um, also seemed to act sort of autonomously. Um, it seemed to have a kind of will and intelligence of its own, and uh, in, in that case, that sort of indicates or hints at, at 
perhaps the involvement of some kind of entity or spirit or something like that. Um, so, it's, yeah, such a mysterious, fascinating case. Well, and, and poltergeist too. I mean, there's, there's just cross-culturally and, you know, throughout millennia, there's all these stories. And, you know, a lot of people point to fraud or criminal activity like you were mentioning with the arson of the barn yeah. and, and stuff like that. But or fakery um, mm. by some of, you know, the the, the agents, uh, you know, in the past. Uh, but I don't know. The whole thing is, is so much more complex because it just pops up so often in so many cultures across time that, you know, there is definitely something going on there. Um, now, the third section of your book, you, you talked about anomalous lights and, and ball lightning. Um, you know, as we're finishing up here, can you tell us some more about about that aspect of your book? Yeah, what what the hell is ball lightning? Yeah, right. Well, ball lightning is a, um, basically they're, they're balls of, of, of light that uh, manifest um, generally during thunderstorm activity, uh, although sometimes they're seen during fine weather as well. Um, and basically they're, sort of roughly the size of a grapefruit they can sort of vary in size um the thing with ball lightning is it's um uh, it's a very fleeting phenomenon so these objects uh manifest if you will uh and then they they usually disappear very suddenly they either sort of dissolve or they explode uh, and sometimes they make a very loud noise uh when they explode as well um it's something that was only sort of really accepted by the, you know, the, the, the scientific community, um, it was as late as nineteen was in the late nineteen sixties. That's when it was really sort of uh, accepted. So it's it's something that was, um, you know, because it sounds so fantastic. I suppose a lot of these reports were, um, uh, you know, ignored or dismissed, etc. So um, it's it's certainly um, established scientifically that that ball lightning is a real thing. Um, but the uh, science simply can't explain it because ball lightning, uh, as I said, it's um, it, it does all sorts of strange things that seem to uh, sort of, uh, I suppose, contradict the laws of, or the known laws of physics. Right, because when we think of lightning, we think of, okay, you have a cloud in the yep. sky and then you got the yep. earth. And then what's happening is like the, the charge in the clouds has more ions or some – this mm. is – I learned this at the university of pulling this out of my butt, but you know what I mean? Like that whole idea mm. of that. There's a, the different charges, the different amount of uh, ions in the sky. Yep. And then it strikes so that the electricity comes down to the place with less ions or whatever. Right. So, so there's charge. Right. And then, so what would happen with the, the balls like that shows up. And what I would wonder is like, how would that even be created? Like, would that just be the amount of ions in the air or something like that caused by some weird atmospheric disturbance? Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's been a whole bunch of different models uh, that have been uh, proposed to try and explain ball lightning. Um, a lot of physicists believe that it's some form of high-density plasma, uh, but the very fact that it can, um, I suppose, even uh, form in the shape of a ball um, uh, is, is, is very difficult to explain, and, and there is one model that suggests that it's held within a kind of sort of magnetic bubble uh, if, if you like. Um, but yeah, no one can really explain it. Uh, we may be dealing with a whole range of, of, of different phenomena, I suppose. There could be many different forms of bolt lightning. Um, 
but uh, certainly most of the reports indicate, as I said, some form of, of, of high-density plasma, which is basically an ionized gas. Uh, and plasma has some very strange properties. It's, um, you know, the, the fourth state of matter, essentially, is what it's referred to. Um, you know, the sun, of course, is a big ball of plasma, but it's it's held together by magnetic fields and so on. So there could be a similar thing happening in the case of ball lightning. Um, and it is very different to, you know, conventional or linear lightning, which, of course, they, you know, scientists have a, a, a model for explaining more or less, uh, you know, the, the charge difference and between, say, a, a cloud and, and the ground, for example. Um, and of course, that's a, a form of plasma as well. Uh, but yeah, ball lightning can do all sorts of really weird things that can, uh, and I, you know, suggest that people, um, well, certainly in my book, I've, I've got I discussed some very interesting reports of ball lightning, but it can do all sorts of things like it can uh, uh, apparently, uh, uh, you know, pass straight through walls and ceilings. Um, it can uh, leave holes in, in panes of glass. It can uh, materialize inside aircraft. It can squeeze through keyholes, uh, can bounce on the ground, and it can enter homes via the chimney. It's like Santa and aliens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Well, the... the, the the ball lightning reports that really interest me are the ones that indicate some form of, of intelligence or sentience on, on, on the part of the object. Um, and those are reports where the, the object will, say, enter the house via an open window and it will sort of go into a room. It will sort of seemingly sort of carefully explore that room, maybe circle around a person, for example, and then it will just sort of, you know, very calmly leave the uh, the house via the say, the window, or maybe it will go up the chimney or something like that. Um, so these are reports where the object in question is uh, is around for a lot, much longer period because, as I said, in most cases it tends to just sort of explode or sort of dematerialize, but in these cases it, it hangs around for a much longer period and it seems to exhibit some kind of intelligent uh, or behavior or some kind of sentience. Um, and we find a similar thing too is the, uh, the famous Foo Fighter, uh, phenomenon uh, where, you know, during World oh, War II, right. the, you know, allies were seeing these strange balls of light. They were generally sort of described as, as behaving in a playful, mischievous kind of manner. And they'd come up to their planes and circle their planes and that sort of thing and, and then just sort of suddenly disappear or what have you. So um, it's been suggested that maybe the Foo Fighters were some form of high altitude ball lightning. I could see that because Dave Grohl, Dave Grohl really, I mean, sometimes when he's really playing, he looks like he's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Man, okay, the so jokes what? Write themselves. I know. Yeah, because we're not a, that good. Put a drum hit in that part. Thank you. Yeah, but um, Louis, so what do you think is the most likely explanation for ball lightning? I mean, is it again something that's directed by a human agent, or uh, could these be entities like some kind of sky beings? Uh, you know, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think, um, as I said, I think we're dealing with a whole range of different. Uh, phenomena. Uh, I believe that there are many different forms of ball lighting, uh, and there could be, um, as I said, that it certainly could be some form of intelligent ball lightning. Uh, and I think that does link back to, uh, you know, the Foo Fighter phenomenon. Um, and there's a there's a fascinating theory. It was uh, a theory that uh, a man came uh, named Trevor James Constable came up with. He, he wrote a, a great book called The Cosmic Pulse of Life, uh, and his theory is that. During World War II, when the uh, uh, you know we were developing radar technology, which is basically uh, you know sending pulses of microwave energy into the uh, into the atmosphere, uh, that that basically 
sort of disturbed all these life forms, if you like, these, uh, well, he refers to them as critters or biological UFOs, these living things that dwell in the sky, similar to how, you know, fish dwelling in the ocean, although in this case we can't see them, and they have their main existence in another reality. Uh, but basically all this uh, agitation of the uh, the ether, is the term he uses, uh, basically uh, resulted in these these beings and objects sort of materializing, if you like. It uh, disturbed the uh, these these creatures, if you will. And I think that's a fascinating theory because um, even even yeah. Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting back in 1947, which really started the whole modern UFO era, uh, he actually came to believe that the objects he saw that day were living creatures. Uh, so he was a uh, proponent of the uh, uh, of the biological UFO theory. Um, so that was his take on it, and he had, of course, a, a very dramatic sighting that day, and apparently had other sightings as well. And so the biological UFO theory isn't just the idea that UFOs are vessels, but that the vessels are creatures in and of themselves. Yeah, sky creatures, if if you want to use that term. <laughs> Yeah, and um, and and you know, yeah. so I, I I like to look at the UFO phenomenon from a sort of organic uh, or biological perspective. Uh, and I, as I said, I believe we're dealing with a whole range of different life forms, a whole range of different phenomena. I'm not saying necessarily that these are all living things, uh, but the Earth is a very mysterious place, and there are various energies at work that can. Uh, give rise to these manifestations, if you like. I mean, there's certainly things like um, earth lights, which is, a, is, is sort of connected to ball lightning, but those lights seem to occur around certain sort of geographical uh, regions and there can be, um, you know, say fault lines. Um, that's, that's been one model suggests that, that fault lines are uh, uh, responsible. There's a, certainly a connection there between fault lines and, and, and the occurrence of these, uh, these objects, and it could have to do with... Um, you know, quartz uh, bearing rocks. Um, so it could be the piezoelectric effect, as it's called, um, whereby quartz, uh, you know, for example, if you bend it, you put stress on it, it will produce like an electric charge, an electric current. Um, so we need to look at all these things, and and uh, and and that's really the way that I look at the uh, the UFO phenomenon. I certainly don't see any evidence that we're dealing with, uh, you know, extraterrestrial beings. Um, and uh, it's all got to do is, with how we perceive these things as well. Um, and because we're so conditioned to think that we're dealing with aliens, uh, very often that will be what we, we see. Um, and there could be some kind of interaction occurring as well between us and the objects, whereby they're manifesting perhaps in such a way that they're, they're manifesting in line with our expectations, I suppose. Um, but that's... I suppose, a very involved topic. Yeah. We've been talking about that for a while on the show, this idea yeah. that they really started, for me, the idea started with Josh Cushion's book about paranormal smells. And when they smelled sulfur and everything from demon sightings to poltergeist to Bigfoot, we see what we want to yeah. believe. But I had, a quick, I had a quick question for you about taking ball lightning and taking it to spontaneous human combustion. Mm. Is lightning hot enough to burn someone to ash? You know, that's why I, I don't know how hot lightning is. Well, look, the thing with lightning is that um, it, it's, it's such a short lived phenomenon uh, that it doesn't actually really cause any, uh, it's certainly not going to, uh, to cause someone necessarily severe burns. I mean, there have been a lot of cases, of course, of people being struck by lightning. Um, 
So even though it's many thousands of degrees, it's 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 such a brief uh, amount or b- brief sort of blast of current uh, that it doesn't really cause much heating. Um, generally, I mean, they might have some burns, say, where their their belt buckle is is making contact with their skin or something like that. Um, and certainly, the the sweat on their body is 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 suddenly vaporized as well, which can cause clothing to actually be blasted off their bodies. Um, but no, it's it's capable as sorry. Lightning is incapable of causing a person to to say burst into flames or something of that nature. Um, so we know that linear lightning simply is incapable of causing spontaneous human combustion. But uh, ball lightning might be capable of causing spontaneous human combustion. I mean, what if the what if the creatures inside the ball lightning are acting as some kind of weird interdimension interdimensional Doctor Kavorkian? That's true. Like they think that people are feeling bad, yeah. and they're like, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. We'll kill them. <laughs> they come yeah. right up to you. They, they we'll put you out of your mis- misery. Because I just looked up lightning. Lightning is, is can be fifty thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Is and that's how hot it, it heats the air, and so. That's really hot, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> if you got a whole ball of it, like, that's it. And the aliens are like, or whoever, the fairies are like, you want to die? Cool. <laughs> we can make that happen. Um, Louis, I mean, this has been just so fascinating. Uh, you know, a lot of your ideas, you know, just remind me so much of, of Jacques Vallée or or Charles Fort. Uh, you know, there's there, there's so much in here that that's just incredible. Um, what what do you have in store for Volume Two? Yeah, well, Volume Two is going to focus um, mainly on mysterious disappearances, um, and um, it's also going to like the missing four one one. Yeah, exactly. I I I will be possibly looking at some of those cases um and certainly uh you know some of the i suppose the better known uh cases as well um but uh yeah it's it's very much a work in progress at this point um and i also want to look more into the um uh, the multiverse theory as well which is the idea that we uh, live in a multiverse and that there are other you know worlds uh existing parallel to our own uh, and uh, in particular, there's a, a theory that um, uh, that uh, that these worlds are not necessarily separate, but they do interact to some extent. Uh, and there's a theory that uh, some of the quantum effects that have been observed, um, you know, spooky action at a distance and that sort of thing, as it's referred to in some cases, um, uh, and also quantum tunneling and those whole range of weird baffling effects that that scientists have observed um in relation to quantum physics i'm looking forward to visiting the universe where i'm not a fat <laughs> jackass <laughs> but there's a theory that that it's actually got to do with- I, I don't know if we can help you with that mike <laughs> but the, the theory is that maybe the, the interaction between these worlds is what gives rise to those quantum effects uh, so I wanted to of course further you know explore the theory that maybe some of this uh, uh, you know strange events, paranormal phenomena that's been observed is actually in relation to uh, the interaction between worlds. Uh, and of course, as I said, with my, my to- term, the borderland, uh, you know, I, I certainly see that, uh, uh, certainly that we could be dealing with um, some kind of, I suppose, bleed through effect between worlds. So some of this stuff could originate from another dimension. Uh, and we're just sort of catching glimpses of it. Um, so that's going to be one of the topics that I explore is, 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 as I said, the multiverse theory and, and, and relating that to the paranormal. 
That sounds good, Louis. And you know what? We're going to have to have you back when you have that book. At also, next time we have a good poltergeist case in the news, we're going to have to bring you back so we can talk about that and we can pick your brand. That's I more. would love that because there, there's just so many questions uh, about poltergeist and you know all the other things that you've written about. You know, we'd love to have you on uh, in the future to to give some uh, in, additional insight to some of those those news stories that that keep coming. Um, you know, I think it, it's great to have an expert like you who could uh, shed some light on some of the weird goings on. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to come back on the show. And it's been a pleasure talking to you both today. So thanks for having me on the show. Fantastic. Of course. And if you guys enjoyed this appetizer, you're going to want to get the main course, which is the Borderland Phenomena Volume 1 book. You can find the link to buy Louie's book at othersidepodcast.com slash 235. Uh, in the show notes, we're going to have that. So, uh, Louis, where can we find you on the web if people want to just check out your blog or YouTube or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, so I've got a, a website. Um, it's uh, louisproud.net. I'm also on Twitter, um, so you can find me, uh, Louis Proud, uh, too, um, is the uh, and also uh, on, on Facebook as well. Uh, but certainly I'd say that the website is the, the best uh, way to, to have a look at my work and there's, there's links to all my uh, books and, and, and also, you know, interviews and, and all that sort of thing. So uh, that's louisproud.net. Fantastic. And you guys can check that out. All the links are going to be at othersidepodcast.com slash 235. Allison, if they want to find out more about what you do, where can they find you? Oh, well, they can find out a whole bunch about me at hawaiiparacon.com. We, we even have our speaker list out for uh, the 2019 event so do check that out that conference is coming up so make sure you check that out now every week we have an original song that is inspired by the topic this week we decided to use this topic of uh, spontaneous human combustion to inspire the song and especially uh, the relationship to alcohol the idea of fire water you drink too much you're gonna blow up kids that's the lesson um, but this particular song takes that idea about partying, getting on fire. But the problem is sometimes when you get so hot, the fire's going to burn out. And so this is Sunspot with the Paranormal Song of the Week called I'm on Fire. And you can find that on the Spotify, See You on the Other Side playlist, or by checking out the show notes and listening there. Everybody else... Uh, we want to thank our Patreon community for making See You on the Other Side possible, uh, making it so we can pay our bills and get, make sure that Libsyn, the hosting service is paid and the domain service and all that kind of stuff. You guys are the best people in the world. Thank you very much. Special shout out to Dr. Ned. Dr. The, Ned, we love you. He's at the level of the Patreon community where he gets a shout out in every single episode. And I wonder what he thinks about spontaneous human combustion. We're going to have to talk to him about that. Yeah, we're going to have to have a, we're Dr. Ned and I are going to have to have a beer and have a discussion of it, but make sure we don't get ba- any matches uh, while we do it. So th- the thing is, the Patreons are uh, fun because everybody contributes ideas. We have hangouts. We talk about those things. And we'd love to see you guys uh, who maybe aren't Patreons on one of those activities. So check that out at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. You can join us in our Patreon community and keep the fun happening at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at OthersidePodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. It was real. And then seconds later...
That's really hot, man.